0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambuski, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1784, Revolutionary War veteran Samuel Shaw set sail on the Empress of China. He was destined for the city of Canton, or Guangzhou, in southern China. Shaw was a Boston native, and he had served under Major General Henry Knox during the War for Independence. He also became one of the founding members of the Society of the Cincinnati, a hereditary and at times controversial organization made up of American and French officers who served in the Continental Army during the war. George Washington was a member of this society, and he served as its president from 1783 to 1799. Shaw went to China acting on behalf of some American businessmen who were interested in tea, silk, and other commodities. But he also carried with him the insignia of the Society of the Cincinnati with the intent of having that design painted on porcelain. Shaw's first trip to China resulted in a magnificent 302-piece dinner and tea service later purchased by George Washington. On today's episode, Ron Fuchs walks us through the remarkable story behind this porcelain collection. Fuchs is the curator of ceramics and of the Reeves Center at Washington and Lee University which has an impressive collection of Chinese porcelain and other ceramic objects. Despite its small size, the university has a rather amazing number of fascinating art museums that you should make a point to check out. Now, before we get started, we just want to say hello to our recent subscribers. We've also been pleased to learn that a number of our listeners hit the weights or the elliptical while listening to this show. We're glad we can power you through the pain. And with that, let's set the table for the American Cincinnatus with Ron Fuchs. You ever done a podcast before? No. Well, great. It's my first. So, your first podcast, and we're doing it in the manuscript room. (laughs) This is good. Yeah. (laughs) You're starting off with a bang. Um, You are the curator of ceramics and of the Reeves Center at Washington and Lee University. So, can you tell us, what does your job entail? What is it you do on a daily basis? So, Washington and Lee has
1: a large ceramics collection. Like most... Uh, universities we have a, a collection of art and historic objects but we're a bit unusual in that we have a large uh, historic ceramic collection and so I am responsible for curating the collection, um, for acquiring objects, for researching them, writing the labels as they go on display, doing permanent gallery installations, temporary exhibits, um, but also the mission of the collection is is very much that we are to be a teaching resource mm-hmm. for the university. And so I also uh, teach or co-teach uh, several classes that use the ceramic collection and also do guest classes and handling sessions for other classes mm-hmm. ranging from art history to history to economics to politics classes, um, anyone who, who thinks they can integrate the collection into their curriculum.
0: So it's not just a place to come and look. It's a place to actually get down and dirty and, and maybe do some delicate hands-on Exactly. Exactly. No,
1: and uh, ceramics are actually very sturdy, very forgiving mm-hmm. objects. Um, you just can't drop them. Yeah. <laughs> <It's, that's, laughs> as long as you don't drop them and break them into pieces, they will. they're among the most enduring things that yeah. humans make. What do we mean by ceramics? I mean, what, what exactly is that material? So ceramics are anything that's made of fired clay. Um, and so under that kind of umbrella term, mm-hmm. we would have earthenware, stoneware, porcelain. Those are all different types of ceramics based on being fired in a kiln at a different temperature. They're made of different types of clays. Um, and also terms that are not as technical, but things like china that, uh-huh. that we use to describe sort of dishes, and especially nice dishes.
0: How long have humans been making ceramics?
1: Humans have been making ceramics for thousands of years. Uh-huh. Um, and again, they're among the oldest things that humans make, sure. or have made, or that we have evidence of.
0: And so maybe textiles, mm-hmm. maybe woven baskets were earlier, but they don't survive. And do, we, do you have a sense of where we see the earliest ceramics with their origin story?
1: So they appear um, probably independently um, in Japan, in um, the Middle East. So, but you know, they've been around for thousands mm-hmm. of, of years. And, and again, they are very enduring and very durable. And, but then also because they do break if you drop them they tend to be disposed of a lot. Mm-hmm. And so we find them archaeologically. They're one of the best tools archaeologists have to understand uh, cultures from
0: the past. And you alluded to earlier the fact that Washington and Lee, or W&L, uh, as it's often referred to, has a pretty substantial and pretty amazing ceramics collection. And for listeners who may not know, Washington Lee is, is not the biggest university. It's, it's more akin to a, a large um, liberal arts college. So how is it that Washington and Lee has been able to acquire such a massive collection and it's been able to do this kind of uh, interpretive work and this teaching work? So the
1: collection, which um, includes a couple thousand pieces, and we have uh, pieces that are range from 4,000 BCE up to the present day. Wow. Um, it began with a gift in 1967 uh, from Euclid Reeves, who is an alumnus, and his wife, Louise Harrisoff, and they gave their private collection mm-hmm. to the school. And that in, has inspired, you know, now several generations of students who've gone on to be interested in ceramics and collect ceramics. And sometimes they have given pieces to us. Um, and we have so the collection has continued to, to grow. We're best known for our collection of Asian export ceramics. So okay. these are pieces um, primarily of porcelain, a very high fired ceramic body. It was made in China and Japan and exported to Europe and the Americas, throughout Asia, throughout uh, the Middle East. And our collection of Asian export ceramics is one of the best in the mm-hmm. country. Um, we're uh, bested by places like the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Peabody Essex Museum in Winotur. And so we're
0: right up there with those. Wow. Well, if you're going to be beat by somebody. Exactly. So it's good, it's good company to be in. <laughs> and we'll come back uh, to your specific... Research interest in um, in porcelain here in just a moment, particularly China. But when did your interest in ceramics begin?
1: Um, so, as um, a, a young kid, I was always interested in history and um, especially archaeology, mm-hmm. and decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. And so, on family vacations on the Chesapeake Bay, I would often um, sort of walk along the beaches and the waterfront and pick up fragments. And be interested in them, and uh, my parents took me to Kelowna-Williamsburg when I was young, and I would would be interested in the archaeology, and so that's... My undergraduate degree is actually in historic Mm archaeology and American history, Um, and so dates back from when I was probably
0: 10 or 12. Wow. That far back. Yes. done some reading ahead of time, and you, you once said that ceramics are a great vehicle for learning about people. What do you mean by this? So, I...
1: One of the things, in, and my interest in, in ceramics and, and basically objects in general, is that these are a great way to learn about people and often about aspects of, of their lives and their culture that they may not write down, mm-hmm. or of groups that historically have not had the ability to write down their story. Um, and so, ceramics, because they are, you know, both durable but also breakable, and so they end up in the archaeological record or they end up surviving above ground, are a great way to learn about um, questions about trade patterns, Mm -hmm. about how things move around the globe. They're a great way to learn about how people eat and drink. And if you think about kind of what, you know, sort of some of the most innate things that we do as humans, it's eating and drinking. And Mm -hmm. one of the, you know, sort of most... um, you know, kind of innate things we can do is share a meal with someone. And so we can look at how these very important aspects of people's lives can be done or, you know, were done. Of course, the food and the drink does not survive. Sometimes the recipes do, but we can look at the dishes um, that they used and we can start to kind of reconstruct a bit of their world. And so we can look at the ceramics George Washington, George and Martha Washington used, and we can look at and see at how they were dining at sort of the the highest level mm-hmm. of, di- of sort of European-style dining, and they could entertain their guests and serve, you know, the most elaborate foods that would have been appreciated by Virginia society in the 18th century. We can look at the ceramics that their enslaved people were using and we can see everything from what their diet was to, in some cases, even instances of how they are making ceramics and possibly even evidence of kind of African traditions mm-hmm. that they're bringing over. Um, and so they're a great way of kind of, of, of getting a window into how people eat and drink. And, and you know, that's, that's pretty sort of central to, to what makes us human. Um, again, like I, I think I mentioned earlier, they're a great vehicle for trade because they're traded all over the world and we can see trade patterns. We can see um, how technology develops and how technology moves around the globe as ceramic technology and sort of a desire to imitate more expensive imports from somewhere else. Um, how, you know, when, when Chinese porcelain starts traveling around the globe, it infl- every culture that encounters it likes it and every culture that encounters it tries to copy it. Mm -hmm. And so you see this sort of scientific experimentation in order to create um, either the material itself or a reasonable facsimile thereof. And so you can look at technology, you can look at trade, you can look at lifestyles, you can look at economic levels. Um, I
0: sort of jokingly tell students and visitors that we can look at everything through ceramics. And then when you pair that with manuscript sources like we're surrounded with in the room today, Um, you can tell a really complex story.
1: Exactly. I um, was part of my research here at the library. The other day I was looking at an English cookbook that belonged to Martha Washington and looking at the instructions that the cookbook author was giving about how to prepare and serve certain things. And in one of the instances, the cookbook author, Hannah Glass, is talking about how to make custard for dessert. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how you, you know, you you put them in little porcelain cups with lids. And because this was a relatively new type of, of ceramic in the you know sort of third quarter of the eighteenth century, she then talks about how you make a hot water bath for them. And so you put them in a Dutch oven and you add hot water and then you you bake it. And she instructs people very carefully, you know, not to fill it up above the the level of little porcelain lids. And George and Martha Washington had custard cups just like that. And so they could be having this sort of very fancy, what was actually probably French
0: in origin type of dessert. That's fantastic. Well, and, and part of what your research here is also focused on a very specific... Uh, set of China connected to the Society of the Cincinnati, and I want to talk about that uh, in just a second. But I wanted to ask more specific questions about the role of Chinese porcelain in particular in early America. What is its social function? Who's using it? How and how are people using it?
1: So Chinese porcelain is a very high-fired, white, translucent ceramic Porcelain was developed by the Chinese about 600 of the common era and has been exported from almost that time, certainly by 1,000 of the common era. Um, And porcelain is uh, white, it's high-fired, it's strong, it's dense, it's translucent. Um, And so that makes it uh, more durable, easier to clean, brighter, you know, Basically, on on all levels, technical, aesthetic, uh, durability, it is superior to other types of ceramics that are made, like earthenwares and stonewares. Mm -hmm. So as the Chinese start producing this wonderful ceramic body and they start exporting it, every culture in the world wants it. And every culture in the world sees it as kind of the finest ceramic available. So the reason we call dishes China today Mm -hmm. is because for centuries... If you had nice dishes, they came from China, and they were made of porcelain. So in a European context, in a colonial American context, Chinese porcelain is the finest type of ceramic you can have available. It's going to be a sign of wealth. It's going to be a sign of status. It's going to show that not only do you have the cultural knowledge to know that this is what you should have mm-hmm. to set your table, <clears throat> that you have the money to buy it, but that you also have the connections to these networks of global trade that are bringing Chinese porcelain all over the globe. Chinese porcelain goes to every inhabited part of the globe. Um, and so we know that Chinese porcelain was reaching Virginia. We know there are pieces here by 1610. And, of course, that early, the Virginia colony was only founded in 1607. Holy cow. So, um, and, and one of the things that shows is that even though in its first years the Virginia colony was, was you know, unable to sustain itself, you know, this was from a European perspective the edge uh-huh. of the known world, um, it was already linked into these global trade patterns that were moving goods around mm-hmm. the world. Um, and so owning Chinese porcelain was a, also a symbol that you had links in some way to these trade patterns, Um, and essentially that you were cosmopolitan, Mm -hmm. that you were modern, that you were sophisticated, that you were wealthy, and that you knew what you needed to kind of have about you to show that you were a gentleman or a lady, what in the 17th and 18th century they would have called genteel Mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Chinese porcelain would have been something that anyone who was wealthy in colonial America would have almost certainly wanted and frankly would have needed Mm -hmm. in order to show that they were part of this elite, you know, cultural, political, economic, social elite that, you know, was sort of entitled to rule. And so we see... George Washington in in, um, 1758, when he has gotten Mount Vernon, he's expanding it. He's furnishing it sort of in preparation for his marriage. One of the things he buys is a blue and white dinner service of Chinese porcelain. It's a relatively small service compared to what he buys later in life, Mm -hmm. but it is essentially allowing him to dine at an elite level and to sort of be able to hold his own with you know, the the Virginia elite.
0: Well, I, I'm still blown away by the <clears> fact, <throat> fact that we have evidence of that back to 1610, because as you said, Jamestown did not go well in its early years, but already the gentlemen, or the the people who have pretensions to be gentlemen, are already deploying that cultural knowledge and, and those symbols of status and wealth to cement their place in this new society. Exactly. So you're researching a particular uh, dinner and tea service that's connected to the Society of the Cincinnati, the Fraternal Order of uh, Continental Army Officers, of which George Washington was a member and president from 1783 to 1799. Um, And that story starts with a man named Samuel Shaw. Can you tell us who he is or who he was? Certainly. So Samuel Shaw was an officer in the
1: United States Army. He was a one of the founding members of the Society of the Cincinnati, this organization of French and, uh, French and American Revolutionary War officers. Um, and he was also the first American merchant to go to China. Mm-hmm. So this this service that Washington ends up owning is, I think, the most significant Chinese export porcelain service made for the American market. And the first reason for why I think that is because it essentially represents the United States, the new United States' mm-hmm. his first foray into international trade. Oh, I see. So in 1784, Samuel Shaw is hired to be the supercargo which is the term for sort of the merchant, Mm on board the first American ship that goes to China, the aptly named Empress of China. (laughs) And so he goes to China in 1784, and in addition to buying um, tea and silk and cotton and porcelain um, on the account of, of other merchants who've contracted with him to provide them with goods, um, he also is doing some trading for himself. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he decides to do is to commission essentially a luxury dinner service, a uh, tea service that is basically custom designed and is decorated with a figure of the classical goddess Fame. Mm-hmm. And she is holding the eagle, which is the badge of the Society of the Cincinnati. Um, and so Samuel Shaw commissions this, he brings drawings to China. He actually writes about the process of, of trying to communicate with the Chinese painter um, who's going to be executing this, this order. and he talks about the difficulty of, of you know, trying to explain you know, the arcana of you know, military insignia sure. and classical goddesses to a, a Chinese painter for whom this is all different. So we've got this wonderful little window on how the trade works. Um, and so Shaw commissions the service. Um, it is brought to the United States. And in 1786, George Washington purchases it. Actually, Henry Lee, Lighthorse Harry Lee, a fellow officer and, and friend of Washington, um, who is in New York where the service is offered for sale. He's the one that alerts Washington mm-hmm. to its existence and basically serves as kind of a proxy shopper for Washington. And so he he makes the negotiations and executes it and arranges for its shipment um, to Mount Vernon. And George Washington pays $150 for it. Wow. Um, which was the equivalent of 60 pounds. That was a huge amount of money. Yeah. Um, you know, he... The same year as 1786, when he's, he's buying the Cincinnati service, he rents for 12 months uh, an enslaved African-American man to serve as a groom, a, a sort of a horseman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's 12 pounds for wow. a year's labor yeah. of someone compared to 60 pounds for a set of, you know, what are breakable mm-hmm. dishes. A couple of years before, he buys a sterling silver coffee pot, a lot of, you know, sort of, exp- you know, metal that even if you dent the coffee pot it still has its intrinsic value he pays um, something like 30 pounds for that um, and in 1787, the year after he buys the Cincinnati service, he pays 27 pounds for the dove piece that wow. is the um, the weather vane on the, the cupola. On the cupola, up, yeah. on it. So, so th- he's laying out a, a fair amount of money in order to to get this. And I think Washington is is buying this service because one, he's the the president of the Society of the mm-hmm. Cincinnati, um, and so he has you know an affection uh, for. His fellow officers is proud of his his military accomplishments. Um, he also wants you know sort of a bigger service for fine dining and yeah. this will help him do that he 's also we know Washington is interested in new technology, interested in new things, interested in america 's expansion and progress and so I think he also was excited by the fact that this was was you know coming back on mm-hmm. the first American voyage to China. Uh, But then also, I think Washington is, is interested in sort of the allusions to Cincinnatus, who is the namesake of the Society of the Cincinnati. And Cincinnatus was an ancient Roman hero from the Roman Republic. He was a farmer, who, at a time when the Republic of Rome was under attack, he was given um, dictatorial military powers. He led Rome's troops to victory and then relinquished power and retired back to his farm. Um, In the 18th century, uh, Cincinnatus was seen as the model of what they called disinterestedness,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: which essentially was the idea that you should serve your, your country as needed and not sort of, you know, take power permanently for sure. yourself. Um, George Washington, especially after he renounced um, his his military commission at the end of the revolution, um, was seen as a modern-day Cincinnatus. Mm-hmm. And Washington, sort of recognizing that he was the most famous American and that the eyes of the the new country, the eyes of the world, in fact, were on him to serve as sort of a role model of what... A citizen in this this new republic mm-hmm. would be like. I think he saw this as a way to kind of neatly balance a desire for expensive, luxury, personalized porcelain um, with this idea of sort of a symbol that would be reassuring Mm -hmm. and sort of remind people of the connections between Washington and Cincinnati as someone who was not going to sort of be keeping power for himself.
0: Well, it's really interesting, too, because he he is purchasing for an enormous sum uh, a luxury item that you might associate with aristocracy, but it's adorned with symbols of republicanism. Exactly.
1: And I think that's something um, that... In, in my research here and reading about Washington and reading about um, other of the, the sort of the, the founders of the country, they're actually talking a lot and writing a lot about things like what do we call the president? What should mm-hmm. the title be? What? How do we dress? How does the president dress? How does the Congress dress? How do we... Decorate our homes? How do we furnish our tables? How do our possessions say things? What messages are they going to send? So objects, possessions, clothing, these all send messages about who we are, Mm -hmm. who we think we are, who we want viewers to think we are. Um, And but but sort of politicians and leaders are especially careful about the messages that they send mm-hmm. through their their material culture. And George Washington um, was especially aware of that and I think also was quite brilliant at balancing um, his his material world in ways that would put him in the same class mm-hmm. as other world leaders, that he would be recognizable as a person of authority of wealth, of status mm-hmm. of intelligence, while also not sort of too closely um, using symbols that would represent aristocracy sure. or monarchy. Sure. Um, and so I, I think this is the sort of thing that that the Cincinnati service kind of allows Washington to
0: to sort of... Neatly walk that mm-hmm. fine line. What's well, even more interesting, too, because the the society was kind of controversial in its own day. There was this question of whether there should be a hereditary order that membership passed down from father to son, of and and whether not that was anti republican and, and didn't didn't that just smack of monarchy? Exactly. And Washington, in fact, s-
1: somewhat. Seems to have distanced himself from the society, as they um, sort of refuse to kind of renounce their hereditary nature, and so again, I think that's one thing that makes this uh, porcelain service mm-hmm. kind of again sort of a, such a multi-layered and very kind of object that that carries lots of different meanings, mm-hmm. and so again, I think many people who would have dined with Washington would have seen. F- the the classical goddess of fame, seeing the Cincinnati eagle, would have drawn those connections to Cincinnatus, to Washington, to the fame of Washington. But it's quite likely that if, say, Thomas Jefferson had come to dine, (laughs) um, I doubt the Washingtons would have used the Cincinnati service, because that would have, have, um, you know, sort of simply reminded Jefferson and, and sent the message to him that, This hereditary order did exist Mm -hmm. and did, in the minds of Jefferson and many others, sort of pose a threat to establishing a new type of aristocracy in the United States.
0: Well, and that raises a question then of uh, how do we know when the Washingtons used it and how often did they use it? So,
1: unfortunately, I mean, this is this is what uh, curators, we always wish for, is that, you know, we would find a letter where it said, I, you know, came to Mount Vernon and George and Martha made me this delicious dinner and this is what I ate and this is, and we ate it off the Cincinnati porcelain. <laughs> unfortunately, we have nothing yeah. like that. Um, the evidence we have is that Washington, obviously, it came here to Mount Vernon, we know exactly what day it was delivered that it arrived without much breakage, uh, for instance, we know that. And we know that it also went to New York and then Philadelphia Mm -hmm. to the president's mansions. Um, Tobias Lear, um, who served as sort of a secretary, almost perhaps kind of house manager to the Washingtons, um, when he is sort of helping arrange um, the moving in um, to the new president's house in Philadelphia, he actually refers to a, a particular kind of a butler's pantry or closet where um, they could safely store the Sev porcelain, the white and gold porcelain dinner service that Washington also used when he was president, and the Cincinnati china, because they, you know, and this was a closet where they could store things that were not used frequently. Sure, is is sort of the way he describes it. So it seems that it was something that was certainly intended to be used. Mm-hmm. The Washingtons went to the trouble to have it sort of shipped up and down the East Coast but it does not seem to have been the sort of thing they would have used every day and i i think one unanswered question i have is did they sort of use it less because of the controversy over yeah. the society Or did they, you know, sort of just bring it out for kind of more special occasions?
0: Yeah, Yeah. was it used for a very intended purpose? Yeah. Like Christmas these days when we only use our fine china. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Um, And it's likely that both the the Sev Porcelain Dinner Service and the Cincinnati Service Mm -hmm. were, were used for those sort of Special, more formal occasions, and I think we, we noted at the top that there was three hundred and two pieces. In this? So the receipt uh, records three hundred and two pieces. Okay, and we know one of the things I've been doing here is trying to identify surviving pieces, and we're at about one hundred and forty that we know that survive to this day, and there are probably more out there. And what what would <clears> have <throat> this set consisted of? So the receipt says it consisted of a dinner service, a tea service, and a breakfast service. Okay. Now, a tea service is going to have teapots, uh, at least one, maybe two, almost certainly a coffee pot as well, Uh, tea bowls and saucers, sugar bowl, cream jug, um, probably a dish for cookies or something like that, perhaps separate different coffee cups as well Mm -hmm. would have been what's in a tea set. Um, Other tea sets that Samuel Shaw commissioned um, had 45 pieces. So okay. we've, we've got that um, as sort of a, a general idea. Um, and tea was, was a social beverage mm-hmm. in the 18th century. So it was not just something you drank in order to, to sort of get caffeine and wake up. It was something that you would entertain with and you would literally have tea parties. Um, and so that's why you would want a fine service yeah. for that. The breakfast service is going to be larger teacups and saucers, and that is because for breakfast you would want more of this caffeinated hot sure. beverage to wake you up. Um, and the dinner service would have had um, several dozen plates, mm-hmm. um, quite possibly 12 dozen plates. Um, wow. Services could have up to that much. It would then have soup plates, it would have possibly several dozen platters soup tureens, salad bowls, sauce boats, uh, stands for the sauce boats, salt cellars, um, these little custard cups. Um, And so it would have allowed you to serve a meal in what at the time would have been called service a la Francaise. And this is similar to how we generally still eat Thanksgiving today. Okay. Where all the food is on the table, sort of arranged down the middle, and you pass the dishes around or you serve yourself from kind of what's in front of you. Um, so that's why you need lots of platters, why mm-hmm. you need lots of soup tureens, because you're going to have, for fine dining, you would have this abundance of food, more than, than, you know, would actually be consumed in the meal, of this idea of you're showing your hospitality by setting this rather grand table. Um, a meal not unlike kind of, you know, of, of if you go out to a fine restaurant today or, or have a, a fine dinner party, you would start with soup. You would then proceed on to a second course that would have meat, possibly several different types of meat, um, side dishes of, of vegetables and starches. Um, and then you might have a second main course. that oh. might be lighter meats like fish. Um, or, or, you know, chicken or, or fowl or something like that. Um, and then, you know, depending on how grand you wanted to be, you could even have a third course. Um, and then all of those dishes would be cleared away from the table, and you would then have dessert that would be brought mm. in. So the result is you need lots of plates, so you can change plates with each course, and you need lots of serving pieces in order to sort of set this kind of abundance of, of food on the table. That's quite a meal. It would have been quite a meal. It would have been sort of midday, early afternoon, again, kind of the time when we have Thanksgiving dinner Mm -hmm. or, you know, Christmas dinner if you Mm -hmm. celebrate Christmas. Um, And one of the things we see in in dining patterns and foodways is that for special occasions, we sort of preserve old-fashioned ways of dining and doing things. Uh-huh. And so, again, the the way, you know, we sort of think of Thanksgiving today is is really kind of a, a descendant of this, you know, sort of very grand 17th and 18th mm-hmm. century form of dining that has survived as a way that, you know, we think, well, when we really need to pull out all the stops, yeah. that's what we still do. Well, it's,
0: it's interesting, too, because that was a very, as you say, sort of genteel, aristocratic um, form of dining, and we've democratized that now, at least in this country and probably exactly. other countries yeah. as well. <clears throat> And it also speaks, I think, as you're saying, about about 100-some-odd pieces survived? So about 140. 140. So, I mean, that speaks, as you were saying earlier, to the durability of this material, that one, it survived, the Trans-Pacific. Oh, no, did they come did they come from China down so, uh, west um, that way,
1: when they're on the return journey? No, generally from the East Coast, uh-huh. um, most American voyages to China would have gone first across the Atlantic okay. to... Um, Maybe the Azores, um, where they would have sort of stocked up on food and water, Uh then would have gone down around Africa, across the Indian
0: Ocean. um, So along along the old Portuguese
1: routes. Yes, so along the the routes that the Portuguese first developed in the, you know, right about the year 1500. Yeah. um, And then up to the coast of China and back. um, You know, by the 1790s, Americans are also going... um, West and going around South America, uh-huh. um, but one of the reasons they're doing that is because they are going up to the Pacific Northwest and they are collecting and buying furs,
0: which oh, okay. is then
1: something that they can sell sure.
0: in China. <clears throat> I'll be darn. So what happens to this set or this service after the Washingtons die? So George Washington
1: dies in seventeen ninety nine he leaves all of his household possessions to Martha. And then in 1802, um, when Martha passes, in her will, um, she very carefully divides up um, household objects um, in ways that, that suggest, at least to my reading of, of her will, you know, of both um, sort of the idea of giving sort of family heirlooms, mm-hmm. giving mementos to people, also setting up some of her grandchildren with, you know, just practical things as they're setting up house. And um, interestingly, her grandson, George Washington Park Custis, he is left all of what you would consider sort of the family heirlooms, the kind okay. of the dynastic objects. Um, he gets the family portraits. He gets the silver, almost all of which is engraved with either the Washington coat of arms or the Custis coat mm-hmm. of arms. And Martha specifies a number of ceramic objects, including the Cincinnati service, um, what's called the States service, which is a tea set that was given specifically to her, the bowl with a ship in it, which is a large punch bowl that was presented to George Washington that has a ship painted inside it. Wow! So all of these objects that, that I, th- I think what she is doing is she is giving George Washington Park Custis essentially the Washington mm-hmm. family heirloom so he can carry on this legacy. A legacy. Um, and I think one of the reasons that, um, you know, seemingly probably about half the service survives is it seems to have most likely at that point stopped being used or okay. maybe being used even more infrequently and is sort of transformed from being an elegant, modern, you know, service that is very much, you know, kind of a personal emblem of of George Washington, but something that he would have used and would have been sort of seen as kind of new and flashy and modern. And it now is being transformed into essentially a relic of George Washington. And it is being treasured um, as something not so much because it is an elegant, Chinese porcelain mm-hmm. service that allows you to dine at a fine level, but because it's connected to George Washington, and we start to see um, George Washington Park Custis and then his daughter Mary uh, Custis Lee, they give pieces away as mementos um, to family members, mm-hmm. to friends, and to admirers of of Washington, and so the services, you know, must have. You know, become unusable You know, within a number of years yeah. as they kind of are giving away pieces and they are sort of treated as relics um, one of my favorite objects that I have uh, worked with here is a fragment of a platter from the Cincinnati service and wow. so at some point a platter was dropped broken and someone very carefully saved that central bit that has the figure of fame on it that has the eagle on it and they probably kind of chipped away the rest of it till it became kind of a rectangle, and then they framed it so they could hang it on the wall like a picture. And they framed it with a frame made of wood cut from one of the wooden pegs of George Washington's Revolutionary War tents.
0: <laughs> and so it's
1: kind of this. And then they they pasted a piece wow. of paper on the back of it and wrote this whole story down so so you know it wouldn't get lost. Um, and so truly, you know, a relic you know now several times yeah. over. And we know this was done by by about eighteen sixty uh, because during the american Civil War this this relic is lent to a fair, a fundraising bazaar mm-hmm. um, in hudson New york that 's meant to raise money for um, for wounded soldiers, for the, the families of, of soldiers fighting fighting with the American army in the Civil War, um, and so this is being kind of put on display, and that you will come and view um, and you know presumably think of of George Washington yeah. and the struggles he went through to found the country, and then that you know will will sort of redouble your efforts
0: to so was that was that uh Was that particular relic voluntarily given uh, to help raise money, or was that something that had been confiscated by Union troops uh, during the...
1: So the the likelihood is that this... Um, my assumption is that this piece had already gone out of the, the Custis family, mm-hmm. that this was one of the things that they had had given away in, you know, the 18s, oh, 20s, see, yeah. 30s, 40s, mm-hmm. as they're giving pieces away. And it was not for sale at this at this bazaar. It was just on display. Yes. And so you could go and look at it, along with looking at other Washington heirlooms that, that a, a person who was a... a an admirer of Washington had had simply collected, you know, to express his own sort of interest and support and so, and sort of reverence of of the first president. It's
0: like praying at the altar of the father in a lot of ways.
1: It's, exactly. So it it you know these become for you know the new republic you know these are are sacred mm-hmm. objects um, that that sort of carry a bit of of you know sort of the character of Washington. Now, what happens to the rest of the service that still had remained with the Custis family, um, so that was at Arlington House, which was the house that uh, George Washington Park Custis built on the heights overlooking Washington, D.C. It's now Arlington National Cemetery. And um, upon his death... Um, in the 1850s, it passed to his daughter, Mary Custis, and she had married Robert E. Lee, the, later the Confederate general. Mm-hmm. So at the start of the Civil War, when Robert E. Lee decides to fight for the Confederacy, Mary has to leave Arlington um, because it's going to be confiscated. Uh, she knows it'll be confiscated uh, because it's essentially the heights overlooking the, the capital. So um, she writes about how she attempts to secure the Washington heirlooms that she had been left by her father. And Arlington had been built as much to be a grand house for George Washington Park Custis, almost as much it was built just to be sort of a temple to George Washington and to be a repository for the Washington heirlooms Mm -hmm. that he had inherited. Um, And so Mary uh, Custis Lee packs up the portraits, the family silver, Washington papers that she has. She sends those... Uh, deeper into Virginia for safekeeping. And she writes about how she packed up uh, the Cincinnati service, a lot of the other Washington heirlooms, and then locks them up in a, in a room in the cellar. And she leaves Arlington in the hands of Selina Gray, who is her enslaved African-American housekeeper. And Selina Gray, um, and so, so Arlington is occupied by the Union troops, who originally, they don't go in the house at all. They just sort of, you know, leave the doors locked and, and leave it alone. Yeah, But over the next couple months in 1861 and into... <clears throat> more and more people are starting to break into the house to to sort of um, mess around as troops are coming and going. And Selena Gray evidently is, is guarding the house. Mm-hmm. There are some uh, family stories that descended in her family of her running off Union troops, you know, Union soldiers that are, that are sort of breaking in and sort of looking around. Yeah. But eventually... Um, She uh, decides that she cannot protect these Washington relics. And so she turns them over to an officer, um, explaining what they are, what their value is. He writes to his superiors saying, what should I do with all this stuff? (laughs) Um, And then some other kind of Washington um, historians and and, and, um, people who are interested in Washington objects um, sort of work together to take all the objects, all the Washington relics, into Washington, D.C. for safekeeping. And they are first put on display in the U.S. Patent Office, which huh. also contain kind of display cases yeah. of sort of interesting relics that, that the federal government owned. And then in the early 1880s, they are transferred to what at that point was known as the National Museum. Mm-hmm. It's what we know now as the Smithsonian Museum of American History. Um, and the pieces are put on uh, display there. Um, As soon as the Civil War is over, the Lees try to get back Arlington. They try to get back their possessions, try to get back the Washington relics. It is actually debated in Congress, um, and Congress votes that they cannot be, the the Washington heirlooms cannot be returned to the Lees. Um, But then they try again in 1901. (coughs) This involves... President McKinley, the um, Attorney General of the United States, and at that point, the relics, the Washington objects, including what's left of the Cincinnati service, are returned to Robert and Mary Lee's children. Um, And then they continue to divide them up uh, amongst themselves um, to give them, again, they, they continue to give pieces to family members, to admirers. They give pieces to museums. Um Mary Custis Lee, Robert E. Lee's daughter, named after her mother. She gives a piece to the White House. And ah. it is the, the piece of the Cincinnati service that is now at the White House had come from her. Um, and so the pieces then and it's sort of the next generation um, continues to give pieces away and also to sell pieces. And other family members who had gotten pieces even before the Civil War, they in the late 19th and 20th century pieces start to kind of come onto the market um, mm-hmm. as they become increasingly valuable, and as, as other
0: people sort of want a little piece of, of George Washington. Little Washington. Mm-hmm. And how many pieces are here at Mount Vernon? Do you have a sense of? Um, it's about two dozen pieces. Okay, and so you, a good. You number, have yeah. a
1: nice variety of uh, plates. That was almost certainly... We don't know exactly how many dozen plates were in the service, but that would have been the, the yeah. most. Um, and so that's the most common form. You've got a number of plates. But you also have two of the three surviving custard cups. You have the uh, teapot. You have the sugar bowl. All that seems to survive from the tea set. All the rest. We have no record after about 1880 of any of the teacups and saucers. Um, and so we don't know where they are. Um and then a, a sauce terrine and a platter and, mm-hmm. and, and, again, that kind of wonderful fragment that's actually, you know, sort of the smallest and perhaps on one level the, you know, sort of least obviously interesting piece. Sure. But to me, it's it's that is especially interesting because the multiple stories it can tell.
0: Well, I mean, mm-hmm. I think just over the course of the last, I don't know, 40 or so minutes we've been talking, you've basically told a global story that spans centuries but then tells us a whole lot about Um, society in early America, of the dynamics of family relationships, of uh, the relationship between Washington and his officers, but also his sort of awareness that this is a particularly uh, special service, but also could be, we don't know, but potentially, as you suggested, a a possible liability in certain political circles. you really can tell a whole heck of a lot about people 's lives just from <laughs> exactly
1: as, as um, I, I think we can um, explain just I, as I sort of half jokingly say sometimes I think we can explain everything through ceramics yeah. And I, I think um, I may be exaggerating in many instances when I say that, but I think this is not one of those that I think we can we can you know this service represents sort of the values of the American Revolution it reflects on George Washington's character It gives us insights into how Washington lived How Washington wanted to present himself to the public It represents America's foray into global trade yeah. And especially trade with China You know, which has remained a, a key part of our economy mm-hmm. And remains today, a, you know, a, a, an important And, you know, sometimes difficult part of our economy today Sure, um, And it was back then as well um and and you know then we also can see how in the 19th century the country was torn apart by the civil war and how you know these objects became you know had had a role to play in that as well um and even you know hints about relationships between African-Americans and and their owners and how, you know, we get a a bit, you know, we can get a bit about the biography and and the personality of Selena Gray Mm -hmm. through the Mm -hmm. comments that we have about, you know, sort of how she, um, you know, her character and, and her desire to preserve this and what it may have meant to her. So I think we can just tell multiple, multiple stories.
0: Well, and I think a lot of our listeners will probably never look at their China the same way again, and certainly uh, ceramics of this nature. Then I have have done my work. You've done your job. I've done my job. Well, Ron, thanks so much for a fascinating discussion, and uh, we look forward to seeing the end result of your research and your work. And... uh, uh, I'm sure uh, if folks are in, ever down in Lexington, uh, please do go see the fine collections they have there at Washington and Lee, and you'll learn more than you ever thought you would about ceramics and Chinese porcelain and the stories they can tell. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This show was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, and our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.